is the WTF Bach Podcast. The podcast about Johann Sebastian Bach, brought to you by his prodigal son, WTF Bach. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. Why don't you let WTF Bach guide you? And now, here's WTF Bach. It's Evan Shinners here, dashing this episode off before I go to where? Why, to California. To do what? Why, to play some flute sonatas. Now, I realize I've never featured specifically Bach's flute music on this podcast. And after the violin, the transverse flute seems to have been Bach's favored chamber music instrument. Excuse me, the what flute? Yes, the transverse flute. Transverse as in extending across something. In this case, your face. It specifies that this flute is held like we imagine flutes being held, you know, across the player's mouth rather than extending out in front of them. Why this need for this distinction? Well, the transverse flute was a somewhat new instrument on the scene right in the middle of Bach's career. Right around 1720, we see the first explicit use of the transverso as opposed to Why, as opposed to the recorder. Aha, that's the difference. So if you're looking at Bach's music, you see the word flute. How do you know if it's a recorder or a flute? And yes, a recorder, as in the one you played in elementary school. It's not so clear cut, in fact, as much as people wish to make arguments for a certain instrument over the other, the truth is that recorders and flutes probably did share a lot of the same music. But there are a couple of things that can guide us in our quest to find out whether Bach meant specifically the transverse flute or the recorder. One is the time period. Since the transverse flute was a rather new instrument, pretty much anything before 1720 is going to be a recorder. And then there's the range. The flute can play lower than the recorder by about this much. That's about the bottom note on the recorder. And that's the bottom note of the flute. Now, there's the question of keys, right? Because certain scales are easier depending on which instrument. Certain scales are easier on the recorder, certain scales are easier on the flute. So if we look at keys, and if we see these notes that the recorder can't play, or if it's after 1720-something, it's probably calling for a flute. Earlier than that, it's probably a recorder. I say probably, because even if all these things are taken into consideration, the time, the keys, the range, we can get the right instrument about 90% of the time, but still, as I understand it, there is still a bit of confusion as to which exactly the instrument was in certain pieces, the flute or the recorder. And again, I think it probably wasn't all that important for musicians back then, you know, depending on the context, very depending on the context, certainly not as divisive as the argument might be today, because musicians in the Baroque were, were quite flexible with their skills. And of course, there are these pieces from the Bach repertoire that use both the flute and the recorder. In the last episode, I mentioned that there's an early version of Bach's Magnificat, which was first written in 1723, his first year in Leipzig. The early version is in E flat, right? And those are definitely recorders, not flutes. But then some 10 years later, he transposes the entire work into D major and the recorders are replaced with flutes. But the music I will look at with you today is undoubtedly for the transverse flute. Uh, kind of. You can see it's never easy with this stuff. Nothing is ever clear-cut. But first, let's just have some music. This is the version of the piece, interestingly enough, in G minor, where we have a source of the harpsichord part alone. So that's what I'm going to play for you, just the harpsichord part. Now, this source comes down to us 
with a title page that says trio, but we don't know for what. Trio for what? We have only the harpsichord part. So I want you to sort of imagine what could be happening in this other part, because there are moments where in this harpsichord-only version, you might think, well, why does there need to be another instrument? This is so full. But then there are sections, indeed, where you can almost hear the dialogue with the missing instrument. So let's listen to this harpsichord-alone version and see if you can see if you can construe what is missing.
that is quite impressive, right? That is a long first movement. And this is the G minor source that we have. It is known as BWB 1030.1, as opposed to dot .2, which is the full version of the piece that we have. On this source, on 1030.1, we have a title page. And the title page is quite weird. I'll maybe even try and make that image, the background image of this post. You have the letter H, meaning B, as in the note B. That's the German form for B as in B-A-C-H, the spelling of Bach's name was, of course, uh, B-flat, A-C, and then B-natural for H. Okay, so you've got an H, meaning B minor, and then someone has written over the H, whoops, a big G. Like, this is the B minor, oh wait, no, nope, sorry, this is in G minor. And we know through careful analysis of handwriting styles that the person who added this title page did not actually write out the part, so it was only added later. What is this mistake here? Why this mistake? Why H and then sort of squiggled to make a G? This is an early version of the famous B minor sonata for flute. This is like the hammer clavier of the flute. It's the hammer flute vier. What was this piece? Was it a sonata for violin? Was it a sonata for oboe? Was it a sonata, as somewhat recently suggested, for a, a trio involving a lute? In any case, this is the early version of the famous B minor flute sonata in G minor from before the time of the transverse flute. Now, further evidence that this is, in fact, the transcription is the B minor part itself we have in the hand of Johann Sebastian, and it has errors in the accidentals that show that Bach was actually copying, rapidly transcribing in haste this piece from an earlier copy. But what comes down to us finally in the 21st century is this sonata for transverse flute by Bach himself, who says it is for the transverse flute. It happened to be based on this earlier work in G minor, but Bach officially sanctioned this as a work in B minor for the flute. Okay, not to worry, no more history, no more source tradition. This piece, there are certain pieces that I think Wow, this Bach was really peering into the future here, just like ripping a hole through the time-space continuum and just gazing to the future. When I really started digging into this music, I saw the date on the flute sonata, which is 1736-37. And I thought, yeah, that is, that is certainly a later masterpiece on par with, you know, the third part of the clavier Übung, the contrapuntal insanity of the musical offering, also for transverse flute, you know, some of the... The, the four duets, again, at the end of the third part of the Klavier Ubung, even the four canons in the Art of Fugue, I mean, there's some of these shapes are just so characteristically late. My mind was absolutely blown when some scholars date this to even the pre-Leipzig period, even from before 1723. Now, I don't know if there's agreement on it, but in any case, it's pretty certain that this piece is before the 1730s, at least in this G minor version, which to me really means that this is the harbinger of the late style, at least part of it, some of these wild figures. So we've got this, this leap of the tritone, and then he'll do it in different keys. And for me, what's also exciting is that the bass here, in this particular, I don't know why I'm choosing this particular instance, other than it is really wild and looks wild on the page as well, because I've got here in the left hand, D, C sharp, D, followed by D flat, right? So C sharp to D flat, I mean, what, what an enharmonic little puzzle there, and over this. Going further, 
F sharp in the bass, and then G flat in the bass. Now this is the type of enharmonic sort of messing around that was popular in 19th century France, but my goodness, uh, 1720s Leipzig or even pre-Leipzig for young Bach, that is quite remarkable. Now we're going to go over to the B minor version. Like the G minor version that you heard, it is typed into the computer by me. I'm going to do that with the B minor version too, so that we can pan out the different voices into different speakers so that you could really hear the dialogue going on in the two parts of your, of your head, I suppose. And I, I asked you to imagine what was going on. What was going on in that missing part? And I think some of it is very difficult to hear, but some of it is probably very plain to hear. For example... That sounds like a one-sided conversation. Where is the dialogue? Where is the... That is probably something that's going on in the flute part. And then there's this part, which indeed is very odd when you're only looking at the harpsichord part. It's this. I mean, yeah, just try and play that for your average music enthusiast and say, what composer is this? Oh, uh, could that be Bartok, Hindemith? I have no idea. But it's indeed part of some conversation that the flute will be having above that. The flute will go something, something very futuristic, and then the harpsichord answers again. The flute is saying something interesting indeed, and then... So now let's start listening to some of the B minor version. That is the first phrase. Now, the flute part should be more or less in your left speaker. The harpsichord part should be, the right hand of the harpsichord part should be more or less in your right speaker, and the bass should be somewhat in the center. Now, if it sounds a bit artificial, some of the rubato or whatever, it's because it is artificial. I have overdubbed myself. I put down the harpsichord part first and then put the flute part on top of it. And anyone who's ever tried that knows that it is very difficult to make it sound lifelike, even when you're overdubbing with your own self from a few minutes ago. You're no longer the same person. Anyhow, this is this is Bach cooking. You just know he's he's in there making making this great beat. It's marked Andante. Now, usually we would think of Andante as a slow tempo in music, but in fact, it, I don't think it should be. I think Andante in this instance is meant to keep things moving, you know, in other words, not... First of all, the flute player has to breathe, and they will not make it to the end of this piece at that tempo. Neither will anyone's attention span. I mean, it's already eight minutes long, even in this 
uh, tempo. I love Bach's sense of drama. He opens it up right in the middle of the keyboard. Left hand, right around middle C. And then we have, you know, that's, that's all very diatonic stuff. And then we have uh, the chromatic stuff again. So the left hand just weeping. And then against Bach's sense of drama, he no longer plays in the middle of the keyboard. He brings it down an octave. He drops the beat. And then we start sequencing. That's when Bach just goes around the circle of fifths. Something any of us could do. We can all travel the circle of fifths. Almost could be a jazz standard, but when Bach does it, it's a bit more elegant than my lounge piano, let's say. And the flute, the way that the high notes are placed. I just love hearing actually flute players place these beautiful top notes, ding, and then of course they have to walk down this very, very, very hairy, hairy chromatic scale. Before we hear this first phrase again, I absolutely love the voice leading in this part. And when you hear it with the right hand of the harpsichord, It comes right against the A natural of the piano, of the harpsichord. It sounds almost like French accordion music or something. And then the flute has this outrageous line, truly outrageous. Sorcery is this? What is this? First of all, the C natural, which in B minor is the flat two, so he has the audacity, the, the nerve of this composer to go straight up to that half step above the tonic. And then not only does he do that, this C natural to D sharp in augmented second, a very interesting interval. And then he does it again, this G natural to A sharp. It's these kinds of shapes that make me think, wow, this is, this is late music. Actually, now that I hear that, it, uh, it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't, doesn't actually surprise me. I know I, I think of late music, but why don't I think of the first book of the Well-Tempered Clavier, where indeed he has in B minor this shape that's always sort of... This is, this is the second voice coming in. And I've always, I've always like laughed at that line, you know. I just thought that is, that is the future of music. And that was 1722. So why not? This sonata could have been around the same time. Let's go on right from that crazy line.
Okay, right. Cadence in D major, the relative major, good place to stop. And we got a few things there that we didn't have in the harpsichord version, namely that sense of imitation, right? Just in the harpsichord alone, we have... And you could give that to your composition student and say, make, make a canon. And then right after that, the harpsichord begins playing some stuff, which is clearly accompanimental, almost could be filled in by just numbers, by figured bass. But in the flute, we have this figure, which will come back again and again. these 30-second notes, and I just love the mm, the strictness of it, how rigid it is. Super rigid, immediately contrasted with yet another new rhythm, triplets. As you heard in the harpsichord version, these triplets will come back and absolutely dominate the piece toward the end. Okay, let's hear, I suppose, right from these canons. a rigid figure. Triplets, just a taste. Another taste. Now a whole bunch of them. Now the harpsichord with the rigid figure. Now the harpsichord with triplets. Here we go. Where are we right now? Okay, we're in the key of the five, the minor five, and that is important because it's related to the circle of fifths, right? Bach will usually structure pieces by visiting these tonalities very near to the tonic key. So our tonic key is B, and he will go first here to five, later he'll go to the other side of the circle of fifths, and he'll visit the four chord, and that will be intriguing. But one of the beautiful things here that comes from our ability to study different versions of the same piece is that these harpsichord triplets that we heard, almost like a harpsichord concerto as it were, they're different in both versions. And I'm going to transpose the first version that we heard into the same key and play them in different speakers just so you could hear how it how it's a little bit different. And just you could see Bach in revision and he's like Charlie Parker. He's never playing the same thing twice. And the notes are just flying out of his horn. Okay, that's the version in G minor, transposed. Here's the B minor. Right, it sounds quite similar until I put them into two different speakers. 
Aha, now that is pretty wild. Here's the most mixed up part, the difference. But I switched the speakers. Here it is again, with the speakers yet again switched. I switch it again. He's got so many variations. The variations are endless. Do you remember this part? That was sort of like the first original material after... Then he goes... This figure over the chromatic bass. Well, now we're in F-sharp minor, and we will hear it in canon. The flute will start. And then the harpsichord will imitate. We've got some just absolutely bizarre figures in both parts. For example, this. That's, that's a statement in the flute. A-sharp and E-sharp. And then after this, the flute will take up the, the 16th note theme. Well, the harpsichord sings out the melody. Whatever I can say here about this music is, is going to be falling short of, of really the real effect. But something like this... Remember I was talking about these beautiful notes? Well, now Bach isn't satisfied with just the same note here. He says, oh, even the sturdiest foundation can slip right away. Whoops. Open slipping. So you can, you can really hear this uh, instead of... We hear it. And it will slip so much that we'll have uh, in the flute. Again, more chromaticism. And then, of course, the, the left hand, the bass, starts doing... That's again... E sharp to E natural. Just within, you know, half a second. E sharp, E natural. Oh, yeah, like nothing... Nothing happened. And then we start uh, imitating even closer. You know, instead of I play this, and then you play this, and then I play this, something silly like that. Bach says, no, we're imitating now, switching in canons at the beat. Flute, harpsichord. But now we switch, harpsichord, flute. Flute. <laughs> Until we've got this once sinking chromatic line in the bass, now somehow rising. And what is this line again in the, in the right hand? Again, these augmented seconds. And that is complemented by this flute line, which just sounds something out of like a science fiction movie. Finally, we get to one of either two or three, I can't quite remember. It's sort of quasi-pedal point things in canon that really do remind me of the four duets at the end of the third part of the Klavri Ubung. 
First, just, just your enharmonics there. E naturals in the right hand, E naturals and D naturals in the right hand, but E sharps and D sharps in the left hand, so. But that will happen in a quick canon. Let's see if we could take all of that, all that stuff that I just mentioned, and at least hear some of it. Now the flute starts with this figure. And the harpsichord. Round slipping here. Quick cannons at the beat. Flute. Harpsichord. Switch. Switch. Harpsichord. Here's the sort of pedal point thing. More or less diatonic music. More or less. Now a solo, really for the flute. Here we go. Joyous music, G major. Now a solo for the harpsichord. And to E minor, I mentioned E minor, here it is. The dialogue, the missing dialogue. Another pedal point part in canon. What is this? No, you can't possibly, you can't possibly be starting a recapitulation right now. But he is, he is starting a recapitulation right now. And we are at bar 79 of some 120 odd bars. And we hear this, you know, Bach, the space traveler. I'm sorry for these weak metaphors, but this is him saying in the flute, echoed by 
in the harpsichord. Flute. These odd little bits of scattered musical shapes that he he's she's challenging himself. Can I make music from these bizarre little shapes? And we saw these interesting shapes arise out of that sci-fi line. Then in the flute. This was immediately the harpsichord's response to the flute's odd line. The harpsichord says, and the flute says, oh yeah, I can do that too. Meanwhile, this B sharp to F sharp, this, this tritone, this diminished fifth, is imitated. I'll play the harpsichord line down an octave so you can hear. Now we'll really bring it out this time. Harpsichord, flute echoes, flute continues, and the harpsichord echoes. This piece, again, really for me is showing what Bach would be interested in for the rest of his life. If he still had another 25 years to his career, that's absolutely impressive because we can see what he would fix his attention upon. The rest of the movement is sort of the same, but transposed and with the voices swapped, right? So what was leading will now be following, and whoever was following will now be ahead of the pack. This line that I keep harping on, this very odd line, will first appear in the flute. So let's just get to the end of the movement without me speaking over it so you can really get into this insanely chromatic, canonical, wonderfully contrapuntal world.
is the music. An introduction to at least the counterpoint contained within just the first movement of how many movements? Four. This is one quarter of the great B minor sonata. Are you a flutist or are you a flautist? Tell me, in either case, what is the real cornerstone of the Bach repertoire? Is it anything else other than this B minor sonata? Clearly there's the A minor solo partita. But among the chamber music, is this piece even heavier than the sonata in the musical offering? And just now as I'm looking over this score, I'm thinking, I didn't say anything about this music, and yet I spent 40 minutes on one movement. But all these shapes, these are shapes you could spend your entire life with thinking, wow, how did, how did he do that? How did he put them together? Clearly, it's been on my mind as I'm about to go perform it. I thought I would share this music with you. Of course, my electronic version, like I said, made in haste, maybe a bit aggressive. <laughs> so we will have now a, a beautiful acoustic version played by the man himself, Bartold Koken. That's the name I can never pronounce. K-U-I-J-K-E-N. And the harpsichordist Ewald Demerer. What else can I say? Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoy this wonderful music. The Bach Store coming in Erfurt from mid-March to the end of March. The YouTube channel about to burn down the internet. And I realized a few episodes ago I said that I would include my playing on a double manual organ, which I did record but then forgot to put it into the podcast. So there will still be another podcast before the Bach Store, a bigger promotion for the Bach Store, and that should take us quite far into the spring. So, thanks very much.
you for listening. Wow, wow, that's that's fabulous. Fabulous. All relevant links to PayPal, PayPal Cash App, and Venmo are found in the episode description. You, you should become a WTF Bach patron. Do you ever wonder what makes Bach? Bach? You know, you know, you need Bach. You should write us, and you should write us often at Bach at wtfbach.com. You should. We would like to hear from you. Donate, Donate on, on PayPal, PayPal Cash App, or Venmo. Venmo.